You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism and conversations about the issues affecting our lives. I'm Judith Peppard and I'll be with you for the next half hour. And a big thank you to Black Noise Radio for another great show. I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of this land, and I pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty hasn't been ceded. Today on Listening Notes, we'll be hearing from Professor James Chin, from the University of Tasmania, about secessionist movements in Saban Sarawak, located on the island of Borneo. And you've probably got time to look it up on your map as well, because that's coming up later in the show. To begin, I'm speaking with Professor Joseph Ibrahim from the Health, Law and Aging Research Unit in the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University. I caught up with Joseph last week to look at the special report into the COVID-19 pandemic released by the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. I began by asking Joseph what he thought of the report. I think there's a lot of information, but there's not a lot of action, not the depth of analysis that you need. And I think what we really want is a bit of depth. How do you solve the problem? And how do you know you have it solved? And I I think we're not getting to that point of discussion or debate. The report found that the federal government is responsible for aged care, which we did know that. I was happy to see that statement in there, even though really it was a truism. The way the information was being presented by the Prime Minister, the Health Minister and the Minister for Aged Care made it sound as if they weren't responsible for what was happening on the ground. And as you said earlier, the report really doesn't offer us a clear picture of what went wrong and why. It's important that the listeners understand that this is not a detailed, comprehensive review because we still do not know who was making what decisions when and why they were making them. It's very clear that there is literally no one directly in charge and that there is no cohesive national or state or local level plan. You've been critical of recommendations and concerned that they're too late, but also that it's not enough. And the first one is about isolating residents from family and friends during lockdown. The Royal Commission's recommendation asks the government to provide additional human resource and staff to improve family contact with their loved ones in aged care. Firstly, they've left the voluntary code of practice in place. It makes no sense to me to have a voluntary code of practice when you could have mandated a national code with regional and local applicability based on a a set of criteria that the government stood behind and was enforceable. At the moment, you've got a negotiation which leads to variability and accusations of being too harsh or too lenient. The second is these lockdowns should have been humane from the very beginning. I would have preferred that there be some form of investigation into why some lockdowns were incredibly harsh and how these were to be redressed. 
and lockdowns that were insufficient to reduce a risk of outbreak, there ought to have been a call for greater resources and ways to maintain people's psychological health and social connection. Yes, that must have been so frustrating for families. The second concern that you raise is the Commission recommends the government create Medicare benefits schedule items to increase the provision of allied health services to aged care residents. One would have assumed that would have already been available, but it sounds good. They're recommending that. You make a really good point, Judith, that you'd expect that this would have been available anyway. And the fact that it's not speaks loudly to the discrimination for older people in aged care. People that have seen allied health helpful and useful to be getting their advice and assessments but the allied health person is not with you for the next two, ten therapies or treatments. They establish a program for you, which you then need to follow. The doing has to be done with the resident and the staff on the ground. So there's no provision about what happens following the assessment. That recommendation needed more substance. We want to maintain people's physical and mental well-being One approach is to increase access to allied health. The other approaches are to increase availability of staff to facilitate that. Yes, I mean, one of the things I thought when I read that is if you are in an institution, you are dependent on the staff, depending on your own physical wellness and situation, but you'll be totally dependent on that institution to support you, to implement those recommendations. And one of the huge issues was understaffing. So if that's the case, people are unlikely to be supported as you described. So there's lots of follow-through needed there. Now, number three recommended establishing a national aged care plan for COVID-19. I can't be objective about this. I raised the issue back in March. The plan should have been in place. The fact that they had to state it and restate it, I think, highlights that the government has not been listening. There was more than enough time for the government to pull together a plan. Has the government now pulled together a plan? There is not a publicly available plan that documents the role of the three levels of government. There's not clarity around the role of the Department of Health and Ageing federally. They say, of course, that everyone's working together, but we know repeatedly from what happens on the ground is there's enormous confusion because of multiple cooks. You know, everyone knows that having a lot of people in charge is not helpful. What you want is one person or one small group that is the executive and that you have a clear and understood command structure in an emergency. We talk about the virus as if we're at war with it. I don't agree with that analogy, but emergency response require a clear, direct command structure that is not ambiguous, and that's got to filter from the very top of government through to the individual homes. Yes, and when that's not clear, and this is what we've seen, is you get a shifting of blame and the blurring of the responsibilities. And this is exactly what's happened. People will be comforted because the outbreaks are diminishing and the number of cases are going down. That does not mean that we have a plan in place. And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with Joseph Ibrahim about the special report into the COVID-19 pandemic released on October 1st by the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety.
We've been discussing some of the report's recommendations. I was surprised to see the recommendation that all aged care homes should have one or more trained infection control officers. I would have thought that that was already mandatory. And I asked Joseph Ibrahim if one was enough. One is certainly enough because at the moment that there isn't one. So that's an improvement. It's an improvement from nothing. Some facilities have nothing. Some facilities will have someone available by phone or they employ a consultant as needed. Some will have a nurse on staff allocated that portfolio but not fully trained in it. Others will have someone who is fully trained and available part-time and others have someone that's full-time. I assume that all staff should have training in infection control, but is this that they appoint someone that will train all the staff? The important thing is to have someone who has courage of making sure the staff are trained and adequately trained. Early in the course of the pandemic, the Quality Commission, the regulator, had offered online training and were proud that many thousands of people had done that. And I had argued that it's insufficient to watch something via the web when this is a a skill that has to be learned because everyone's got a different body shape and different skill sets. And I always struggle with the right order because the order you put it on is not the order that you take it off. I can see myself having great difficulty. I mean, even just making sure I take my mask off the right way when I come back from being outdoors. You have to do things in a very specific order. Since the mid-2000s, Hong Kong have had infection control nurses and they do regular training. What they found in Hong Kong was it meant the staff were more capable and confident. They did not have the same sort of absenteeism when you have an infectious outbreak because the staff were confident that they knew what to do. And how to protect themselves. The regulator itself knows based on their own audits that infection control has been a problem for years. It's a welcome recommendation, not because we could see COVID coming, but every year we know that there's going to be a influenza outbreak or there's going to be some form of gastro. Infection is a high risk in aged care and always has been, and we haven't paid it its due attention. You also talk about a number of omissions in the report, structural problems in aged care. What surprised me is they've put out these recommendations, but not acknowledged. How is this to be implemented? Would addressing some of the gaps that we've already known exist help us manage COVID? Because having more staff, having qualified staff helps you improve your whole service. Those were not addressed. And we now need to wait till their final report in February, the end of February which the government will then say is under consideration and will come about in the May budget before any action is taken. It, to me, was was quite strange that they did not propose or put some markers there for the government to act with some objective measure to say these need to be in place by when and as soon as possible. The, the people most affected, the residents silent and faceless. As far as I can see, no one has directly consulted with them. They don't sit on any expert panels. The families who are also affected are not on any of these expert groups. And the nurses who do the work and the personal care workers, 
the ones that are exposed to the risk of illness themselves are not consulted in a formal way. The most important thing is your listeners can make a difference. First thing is ask more questions and then ask them why. Why did they choose that? Why did they not choose an alternative? Why are you doing it that way? Professor Joseph Ibrahim, encouraging us to ask lots of questions of the government, of the aged care programs and agencies. And Joseph Ibrahim is from the Health Law and Aging Research Unit in the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University. And there will be a link to his paper and also to the special report on the Listening Notes website here at 3CR. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. On the 15th of October 1970, the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne collapsed during construction, killing 35 people and injuring many more. 3CR will mark this important 50-year commemoration with a special broadcast featuring audio from our archives. Oh, I think it's uh, well documented why it collapsed. Uh, the uh, engineer released every second bolt and it just couldn't handle it and down it came. But for a while it was not exactly clear who had survived. first impression was that uh, I've never been in a war, but it certainly looked like a, a war zone. People couldn't wait and they were jumping in the water trying to get to save some of their mates. The Westgate Bridge disaster, 50 years on. Tune in at 2pm on Thursday, the 15th of October. I'll be definitely tuning in this Thursday. It's just fantastic that 3CR has all those audio records. Great documentation of this historic and tragic event in Melbourne. You're on 3CR, the show is Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard, and it's great to have you with us this afternoon. I hope you're well and planning to get out and enjoy some of the warm weather that's coming our way this week. I'm very excited. And now we're going to Malaysia, but maybe not the parts of Malaysia you're familiar with. We're going to East Malaysia, Saban Sarawak, on the island of Borneo. Professor James Chin grew up in Sarawak and he's now the director of the Asia Institute, Tasmania, which is at the University of Tasmania. He studies governance issues in Southeast Asia, in particular in Malaysia, Indonesia, and Singapore. So when I saw his article, Is Malaysia Heading for Borneo Exit? Why Some in East Malaysia Are Advocating for Secession? I wanted to find out more. I began by asking James Jin to tell me about Sabah and Sarawak. 
There are many reasons why Sabah and Sarah are much more interesting and I'll just give you a small flavor. They have a totally different history compared to Peninsula Malaysia. Sabah used to be called North Borneo. For more than 100 years, it was run and administered by a private British company called the North Borneo Charter Company, a very similar company to East India Company, so basically the same thing. And on the Sarawak side, it was ruled for exactly 100 years by a private British family called the Brooks. In popular literature, they're called the White Rajas. So the British really only came in to colonize these two states after the end of the Second World War. In the case of North Borneo or Sabah, the company was in no position to rebuild uh, you know, after the war. So they gave it to the British. And in Sarawak's case, the Raja of Sarawak did not have the money to rebuild Sarawak. So he ceded Sarawak to the British government for a special pension. So even today, the Sarawak government is still paying a small amount of pension to the white Raja. So it's really quite an interesting story. It is an interesting story. And I read recently in an article in the South China Morning Post, in which you were quoted, that uh, one of the grandchildren is um, visiting Sarawak again, wanting to create a museum, cover the history. Yes, I think what happened is that with the advent of the social media, people are getting more and more curious about their own history and their own past. So two very different histories then for Sabah and for Sarawak. And Peninsula Malaysia. But the biggest change is the demography. In Peninsula Malaysia, essentially you have three major ethnic groups. The indigenous Malays followed by the migrants who were brought in during British colonial times, the Indians and the Chinese. But in Sabah and Sarawak, not a single ethnic group comprises more than 40% of the population. And in fact, there are altogether about 80 different ethnic and ethnic subgroups in Sarawak and probably about a similar number in Sabah. And also, there's always been a very high rate of intermarriages. So in terms of racial relations, uh, they've actually done quite a good job. If you go to most of the small towns in Sabah and Sarawak, the church is built uh, next to a mosque or a, a Buddhist temple. So this gives you an idea about you know, diversity and tolerance in Southeast Asia. Let's go back to the colonial period for a moment. So Britain acquired Sabah and Sarawak, as you described. And then they were working towards the Malaysia Federation. How did they go about doing that? After the Second World War, Britain was also in economic crisis. The only country that was untouched by the war was basically the Americans. And of course, the Americans wanted to push this idea of decolonization. So when they look at the region, they saw all these small little areas that were controlled by the British, either directly or indirectly. Five pieces of territory, Malaya, second is Singapore, third one is Sarawak, fourth one is Brunei, and the fifth one is North Borneo. So with the typical British efficiency, they decided that we're not going to leave five independent states. This is the Cold War era. They're not going to survive the communist onslaught. So why don't we bring them together and create a federation so that they'll be bigger, stronger, and stop communism in its tracks? So that's exactly what they do. So after the British decided to promote this idea, they spoke to the leaders and said, would you like to be part of this larger federation that we're going to create. Initially, there were lots of opposition. A lot of these people are very loyal British subjects. So that's the reason why about two-thirds of the population said that, you know, if the British want us to come along, we agree to this proposal. Now, this is where the controversy really starts. Historians looking back see that the British were not only pushing for this very hard, they also used the influence of the United Nations to make sure that the Federation of Malaysia was accepted as a member without much problem. 
today, when you talk about the secessionist movement, one of the key arguments made was that the people back in the 60s were not properly consulted whether they wanted to be part of the Federation. Again, the sort of stuff that we see in Southeast Asia is not unique to Sabah and Sarawak. In the last 20 years, we have a very big uh, fight for secessionists. One, of course, is the famous West Papua movement. They also said that the referendum hell was not done properly. And also, we also have a long fight uh, in terms of Aceh. They didn't get the independence because of tsunami, but they did get a high level of autonomy. In some ways, you can argue that a lot of this was due to the fact that when the colonial authorities left this region, in terms of drawing up maps and boundaries, they were usually drawn without any regard for the real situation on the ground. They drew the map according to the interests of the British and the elites, uh, rather than what was actually happening on the ground. Uh, now we're seeing that many people in Sabah and Sarawak feel that the Malaysian Federation has not delivered for them. So they were promised a high level of autonomy. High level autonomy essentially means political autonomy. And also because they were far behind, they were promised that, you know, if you join us, we will start developing you so that you will be on par with us. The people in Sabah and Sarawak feel that this has not happened. The political elites in Peninsula Malaysia are trying to export their model to Sabah and Sarawak. Their model is essentially a racial model of governance. And as I mentioned to you already, you can't do that because the demography and history are very different. Do you describe in the paper a toxic racial and religious politics in Malaysia? So what is it? There's a lot of tensions between the Muslim people and non-Muslim people because the Muslim people regard Malaysia as an Islamic state, so they want to impose Muslim rules on the population. The politics in Peninsula Malaysia is all based about Malay versus non-Malays. But if you go to Sabah and Surah, although those elements exist, uh, they're not as sharp. So the simplest way of understanding this is that you know, if you go to a eatery shop in Peninsula, Malaysia, you find it is highly divided. If you go to a restaurant, everything will be halal. If you go to Sabah and Surah, if you find that you can serve halal and non-halal food at the same place. So that's an example of where you have a much, much higher level of tolerance. If you go to Sabah, uh, there are many cases where in a single family, you got Muslim, Christians, Catholics in the same family, and you know they come together during the religious celebrations. So I think those are some of the really, really positive things that we can learn from Sabah and Sarawak. I'm speaking with James Chin, and we've been talking about why some people in Sabah and Sarawak in East Malaysia are advocating for secession from the Federation of Malaysia. Sabah is one of the poorest states in Malaysia, and the infrastructure in both Sabah and Sarawak is vastly underdeveloped compared with peninsular Malaysia. Yet, more than half of Malaysia's oil and gas production comes from Sabah and Sarawak. So, what's going on? Well, in 1974, Malaysia enacted the Petronas Law, in which everything related to oil and gas is owned by the federal government. Only 5% of the income goes back to Sabah and Sarawak. Here's James Chin again. So you can imagine, right, a person from Sabah and Sarawak, the moment they land in Kuala Lumpur, they see this shiny new international airport, they take the highway that goes all the way from Johor Bahru all the way to Penang, and they begin to wonder, where is all this money coming from? Even today, there is no highway linking Kuching to Kota Kinabalu. So you can imagine it. They just started the project uh, two years ago, and it's not due for completion until 2023 to 2025. In many parts of interior Sarawak, and I'm speaking from personal experience, uh, many of the longhouses there uh, do not have proper electricity. They still rely on generators. In rural Sabas, there's no clean water. 
no electricity, and of course, uh, no internet. Why should a child live in the interior of Sarawak? Why should he have the same online opportunity compared to a child living in rural Malaya? Yes, for sure. There was an election in Sabah, a state election. And uh, do we know what the results were yet? Yes, uh, the results was essentially split. Both sides got about 46% of the vote. Every politician said that they are state nationalists. The results of the elections in Sabah suggest that state nationalism is on the way out because both sides claim that they can deliver on autonomy and economic development. On that issue, there was no differences. The big differences was that one side was saying that, you know, you should vote for us because the other side can be trusted. Even though they claim to be state nationalists, they've been manipulated by Malaya. So it seems that because both sides receive about the same amount of votes, you can argue that, you know, the people are just confused. It sounds to me that there's no immediate threat of secession. If you look at experience in the region, this sort of thing takes many years to brew. What is happening on the ground now is because of social media, those people who want to get out of Malaysia are using social media to educate the public about how the Federation has not delivered. Perhaps we should not give it another chance. We really have to get out and be independent because we've got oil and gas. We can join it with Brunei or whatever. The thing I fear the most is that the Malaysian government may overreact and try to use the security apparatus. You have to remember in many parts of Southeast Asia, right, if there's a problem, a lot of those elites always think that, you know, security is the way forward. When you and I both know that if you want lasting solution, in almost all cases, it has to be political. I mean, a policeman or a soldier can't look into what your heart is thinking. The Malaysian government essentially have two choices. One is to deal with this at a political level and resolve these historical differences. Secondly, if they play the wait and see game, that might be too late. We saw how the Indonesian government tried to suppress the East Timorese. Many, many years, it didn't work. And the East Timorese got independence because I think the world has changed. The idea that you can lord over a group of people just because somehow you're superior, I think those days are gone. Professor James Chin, director of the Asia Institute Tasmania at the University of Tasmania. And he concludes his paper with the following statement. At the very least, what is happening on the ground in East Malaysia suggests the decolonization process in Southeast Asia is not yet complete. This colonial legacy is not only history, but is clearly reflected in the present reality. And so true, as we can see, by the independence movements throughout Southeast Asia. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. This is Monica Jasmine Caro. I'm a proud Gunai Kurnai, Gunishmara and Mukjawait woman. I'm a spoken word poet, 
actor and musician and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. And I love community radio because it is about representation and accessibility for all peoples of all walks of life. And I must have a home somewhere I belong. We're coming up to the end of the show. Thank you for tuning in to Listening Notes today. And also thank you to our guests, Joseph Ibrahim and James Chin. And stay tuned to 3CR because Jasper Blues is coming up next. Take care, stay safe, and I'll catch you next week right here at 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.